Marquette University. Be the difference. Welcome to Illuminating Intellect, a podcast series about the personalities and pursuits of Marquette University faculty members. I'm your host, Dan Myers, the provost of Marquette University, and joining me today we have Dr. John Borg, who is the chairperson of the Mechanical Engineering Department. Welcome, John. Hi, Dan. It's great to be here. Well, let's just start, John, by talking a little bit about your research. Tell me generally what it's about. I know a little bit about this, but um, I'm really curious to to learn more today, and so uh, so I'm I'm excited to have you you tell us a little bit about what the general kinds of things that you work on in your research. So my research involves looking at materials in extreme uh, events such as impacts or explosions, and most people think about material behavior, engineered material behavior, as trying to not deform and not bend. But uh, if, if a bridge were built and it began to sag and bend, people would say, hey, that's the end of the bridge. It's not a good design. But I'm actually interested in uh, having the, the structure f- uh, perform under those events. An example might be a car crash. Uh, I know years ago people would say, hey, I had this 72 Cadillac, and if it got in a wreck, my Cadillac would come out perfect, Right. And, and today people realize, like, oh, that's great, but everyone's dead in the car, right? I mean, that's not what we want. What we want now is the car to crumple, to absorb energy, and uh, to, to help the survivability of the, pa- of the passengers. So that's kind of tied into my research. I'm looking at how, how do materials deform, how do they deflect, how do they absorb energy. And so there's a lot of it that's uh, it involves impact in some way. You mentioned cars, but I think you look at explosions and um, uh, objects striking each other, ballistic kinds of things. Tell me a little bit about how that works. So what we did down uh, in the engineering building is we built a, a large gas gun to uh, look at these events. So we launch materials uh, in the barrel of this gun at about a kilometer a second. If Mach 1 would be 350 meters per second or so. So we're going about Mach 3 down there in the basement. How does that compare to the speed of like a bullet going through a gun? A bullet in a gun is going, uh, it's a little bit slower. So we are slightly faster than a typical sort of like a 30-30 or some, some a hunting rifle of some sort. So uh, we're up there deforming forming the materials. If a bullet were to hit uh, like a tank, it would splash off that tank like a raindrop on the sidewalk. So that material behaves like a liquid. It really does deform and, and splash. So we need to be up into that regime in order to, to do the sorts of research I'm interested in. So your car doesn't just splash off another car. You know, it does still have strengths. But in the regime I'm interested in, the materials lose all of their strengths. They turn into liquids for just a few millionths of a second, and they deform, and then they resolidify after the loading. Tell me about um, some of the... the the, the practical applications of what you're learning in your lab, or maybe there's a specific experiment you could tell us about that ended up having implications for, for something else outside the lab in the, in the real world. If you ask me, hey, uh, what do I do the most experiments on? It's mostly sand. Sand, as you know, is a great absorber of energy. Sandbags, uh, sandbanks, you know, when you see these runaway trucks, they always slam them into sand. Because the sand, the individual grains rub together, they, they generate a lot of friction. That's a source of energy loss. The grains themselves break. That also absorbs a lot of energy. They, uh, those fragments then fill in the voids. It's kind of a smart material in that it will uh, heal itself, so to speak, as the grains fracture and break. So 
uh, sand has always been a very uh, uh, rich topic for these for these kinds of explorations. So I have focused really for ten years on sand, believe it or not, and uh, <laughs> it just keeps going. But uh, applications, like so, when you know I meet and, and and go to conferences, it's people looking at earthquakes. That's a big area of interest uh, about you know how to how to kind of earth materials absorb energy, or people look interested in space exploration. You know, we don't necessarily have to, if we're if we're wondering what's below the surface of a foreign body, we don't necessarily have to go up there with a human and, and, you know, scoop up a a sample of it or even send a rover, we could look at the impacts on the surface and the way that those impacts are formed, the shapes that they make, uh, tell us something about what's below the surface. So you're sending essentially an impulse in, uh, a wave in, that wave reflects off of what's below the surface, it comes back to the surface and leaves a pattern. And so my research then drives that kind of exploration. They, we need to know how does how do these granular materials, how do these earth materials absorb and transmit energy in order to make estimations about uh, what could form those patterns on on other planets. Is is there is there something out there that you know we should be thinking more about in terms of wherever you are in the country, whether it's tornadoes or hurricanes or earthquakes um, that would be impacted by your research to, to help us produce structures or situations that would be safer for us as we're, you know, potentially confronting those things and maybe more of them in the future as, as climate change occurs. Uh, so, yeah, I think my research could translate into that field, really looking at how to make structures safer and stronger, uh, more resilient to, to, to impact loading or to earthquakes, things like that. You know, one of the things that we looked at recently was concrete, strengthening concrete and mortars. Uh, back in the day, I don't know if you have an old house or not, but if you ever take down old mortar and concrete, you'll see hair in the, they mix, used to mix mortar with hair, horse hair. And um, the reason is because it gives it strength. It's like a little rebar within that, within that structure. Mm-hmm. So today we're adding uh, nano, uh, uh, carbon nanofibers to concrete structures to strengthen them, to help them make them more resilient to, to impact loadings or blast loadings or uh, the kind of S&P waves that are exposed, uh, the buildings are exposed to during earthquake events. So these catastrophic sort of events to make them uh, more resilient. You're interested in both what happens to the object that's moving along that strikes something else, what happens to it, but you're also interested in what happens to the thing that is struck by the moving object and and that the pattern that results from that. So both parts of that are important in your research. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm interested in the in the flyer we call it the the, the, flyer. the okay. flyer. Yeah, traveling down the barrel in the target. Um, so there's geotechnical people in the room when we talk. Typically, there's Obviously, military uh, applications for these kinds of work, defense kinds of work. Also, a new area is additive manufacturing. So additive manufacturing is different than subtractive manufacturing. Like it used to be, if I wanted to make something out of steel, I'd get a big piece of steel and I'd carve away at it till I got the part I wanted. That's subtractive manufacturing. And this new idea today is, is that we would take the steel as a granular form and I would put it together additively and create the part. That's intriguing. Uh, it sounds like a, 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 a sort of more ramped up version of 3D printing, right? Is that, yeah. that that's kind of the idea behind that? Now, now tell me, John, how in the heck did you get interested in this kind of stuff? I mean, when you were a kid, were you like, you know, dropping 
watermelons off the side of the building and watching them explode or something? I mean, what got you going on this? <laughs> well, um, I don't know. Like all kids, we loved explosions, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, for sure, as a kid, I uh, made rockets and would, would – like build rockets in the backyard and ask myself, Oh, how can I, you know, where can I get more propellant? And, you know, so I'm sawing open shotgun shells to get gunpowder, you know, don't, don't try this at home, but yeah. And then I would want to um, make more effective rockets and explosions. So I just started to, to make them myself, which in like the modern world, this is not what we want to teach our kids how to do, I think. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, John. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've been pretty successful on that trajectory. Are you teaching your own kids how to do those kinds of things? <laughs> you know, uh, they're interested. My kids are pretty interested. But uh, it is it is funny. I, I did a lot of, I would say, experiments as a kid that I didn't understand until I went to college. And, like, we, we noticed that if we uh, taped our rockets and we taped our explosives tighter we would get better yield like it would be more it'd be more interesting and uh and then later i'm in a college class like oh the Iranian burn law you know it, it goes as a function of pressure like of course that's what would happen were your parents supportive of, of you um, sawing open these uh, shotgun shells and things or, or were you sneaking out behind the barn doing it oh definitely sneaking around doing this stuff <laughs> And my, my parents were aware that I'd do this because I'd come in the house just smelling like, you know, burnt gunpowder and stuff. And so my mom and dad would be like, oh, you know, you just you can't do that. You can't play with fire and stuff. So one day I came in uh, from playing in the yard and my mom said, oh, have you been playing with fire? And I said, no, why? And I'm thinking in my head like, wow, like how did she know? Like she's some sort of magician. And she said, well, you know, your shoe's on fire. And, and <laughs> And I looked down, and my shoelace was on fire, right? I'm like, oh, really? I walked in the house on fire? Like, that's that's ridiculous. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it says here, uh, uh, so one of the things you like to do is run, and you also like to windsurf and ski. D- tell me about the things that you like to do outside of your work life here as a professor at Marquette. I do like to run. Um, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I would call it running, though. Like I feel a little bad about because at the speed at which I move, right? It's probably more like jogging or something. I, I gauge it by my dog's gait. You know, like I watch my dog when I'm running, and after like eight miles, my dog is walking. Right? That's the gait. <laughs> I'm like, really? Can't you? Can't you just act like this is a struggle for you? Can you? Can you still? Can you still be in another gate other than walking? But yeah, I enjoy uh, running a lot. So do you? Do you? When you're out there running, I mean, a lot of people find it as a you know a time when their their mind is sort of released and it helps them, you know, unconsciously or consciously think through problems that they're working on at work or something. And so you know, you're running along and your feet are hitting the ground. I mean, does that make you think about the impact of one um, object against another? And does, you know, at the end of the day, the way your feet hurt, does that change the way you think about your research? I, I have been playing around with my shoes recently. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, like going with uh, a little bit lower drop in my shoe, thinking about the impact, you know, getting older, right? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit lower regime. Like, I don't turn to a liquid when I hit the ground normally. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I was thinking about this, though, when you were talking about sand, actually, because you mentioned how it absorbs so much energy. And any of us who run and have run on a beach, I mean, you, you absolutely know that. It's like, you know, running running a mile or two in sand on the beach. I mean, it's it's like three times the distance in terms of effort because it's absorbing so much of your uh, of your energy when you run, right? I mean, that's 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 another way that this comes into our lives. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because I don't know if you, do you run mostly on concrete or on the dirt? I mostly run on concrete because we're in the middle of a city, and so that's what you get stuck with. Right, exactly. So I'm out there in in, uh, in, a, in a neighborhood where I've got access to sidewalks, but mostly I run through people's yards. Actually, uh, just off the sidewalk. Maybe between the street and and the sidewalk, I try to stay uh, off that. And, and and I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like it makes a big difference as to as to how I feel. Plus, I think it's a little bit more challenging. Like the, my foot strikes a little different, and I like I I uh, don't have any problems with rolled ankles and things. And I I don't know. I just enjoy it a little bit more than the constant repetitive pounding of of the sidewalk. I notice my dog prefers the sidewalk, and he's always on the sidewalk. So. I can let them have my space, but, but yeah, I think it does make a difference with that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it does. We should we should get you uh, hooked up with one of our researchers over in the PT department because um, they're really interested in stuff like this and how you know the repetitive pounding of uh, uh, in running or whatever uh, activity it is how it how it affects. I can tell the difference when I run on concrete versus run on blacktop. Mm-hmm. I mean that difference is quite significant to me but but i i definitely sense that and then going to dirt or is sand or something and then treadmills you know they they have a natural purposefully engineered softening of the stride and so when i'm if i'm having a trouble with my feet or something i i will run on the treadmill a few times to give myself a break because it, it does have that different kind of thing so so another thing on your profile sheet here john is that you you like music one thing that was interesting in the in in your description of what you liked is that you like live recordings because there's variations and mistakes and it's not all fixed by the fixed in the mix so to speak um and uh you know, and so tell me more about why you like that and and how maybe that might relate to some of the way you think about the work that you do all right yeah so uh, I guess if I'm going to talk about jazz, I have to give you a little bit of background as far as my perspective, you know, the John Borg perspective of jazz. But I think to start listening to jazz, I think you first you got to know the American Songbook, right? Are you familiar with the American Songbook? Yeah. So it's like a kind of a collection of songs that are considered the classics, the standards, yeah. you know, like like uh, Night and Day, like Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hart and these kinds of all those kind of uh, songs. And so once you learn that, which, uh, speaking of which, I do make my kids listen to the American Songbook. Uh, every morning at breakfast, that's, that's what's on at the Borg House because they have to learn the standards because what, to me, what jazz has done is you take those standards and it's the variations that are interesting. So if you listen to a Chet Baker version of Night and Day versus a Sinatra version versus... Yeah, Diana Krall's version. It's it's to me. It's really interesting to hear the differences in in the personalities that come out, and then even you get that even more in a live recording. So in a live recording, there might be they might just kind of go off on a tangent for a little bit and and kind of riff on something, or uh, somebody might you know come forward like a bass player might come forward and take the lead in a way you've never heard before. So I, I find that really 
uh, interesting and fun. Um, so one of my favorite recordings is this Village Vanguard set that was done in the 60s with Bill Evans. He's a pianist. And they just, it was one day, five sets. So they did two shows back to back and they just recorded it and they just printed it. And that was it pretty much. So you can hear them talking. You can hear people in the background, like ordering drinks and, you know, you can hear the waitresses and it's really, it's just a ton of fun. And their variations, even within that day, like they played the same songs multiple times, but it's fun to hear them change it up a bit and, and stuff like that. I get a big charge out of it. So, so I understand that you are an expert uh, Major League Baseball pitching coach. Is that true? So a few years ago, I had a grad student who was just starting, and he said he wanted to do something with baseball. I said, well, okay, that sounds great, but you need a topic or something. Uh, why don't you go away and think about this and come back with an idea? So he comes back a few weeks later, and he says, you know, the, the baseball pitchers of old, uh, like the Phil Necro generation of, of knuckleball pitchers specifically, um, threw a four-seam knuckleball. And the, the current generation of knuckleball pitchers, Tim Wakefield and Ari Dickey, they're throwing a two-seam knuckleball. He said, is there, is there anything about that? And I thought, wow, that's a great, that's a great idea, you know, um, because I have a background in aerodynamics. And so that's, a, that's an interesting topic to explore. So we, we started to look into it more. And at that time, R.A. Dickey was coming up with the Brewers. Uh, he had been at Nashville, and he was just reinventing himself as a knuckleball pitcher. So um, I tried to get a hold of him and, and called over there with the Brewers organization and, and you know, gave him, gave him the sob story of, of what I was doing. And eventually they did. They gave me a cell phone number. And so I called him, and he was down in Nashville, and he was a, really a nice guy. He was watching his kids that day, and he was yelling at his dog in the background. And, <laughs> and so I'm asking him all – I had all these questions lined up, and I'm asking him about how he throws, what his uh, objectives are, where the ball is oriented in his hand, and is it forward or backward rotation. And, and he just goes on and on and on telling me all this stuff. And it was fascinating because he was describing things not as an engineer – but as but as a, a baseball player, you know, he'd say like, "Oh, in days when the air's heavy, um, the ball performs differently." And I'm thinking, "Heavy? Like, tell me more about that." Well, you know, when I'm in Baltimore, I'll pitch differently than when I'm in Colorado. So I'm, I'm thinking, "Oh, you know, air density and and humidity and things like that." So anyway, we we took all of his input and we took it into the wind tunnel and we started doing experiments. Uh, basically looking at what he described as how he pitched the ball. And there's lots of books about uh, how knuckleballs should be thrown. And it took us about two years to, to take this data and to analyze it and look at it. This was the, the arc of Mike's master's thesis. And right after that, we published the work, and, you know, there it was. It was published. And then he wins the Cy Young, right? So suddenly everybody's interested in R.A. Dickey and everything about the knuckleball. And it was the beginning of opening season, or it was, uh, you know, we were approaching opening season, uh, uh, opening day. And um, I was actually in Colorado. I was skiing. And I was no laptop or, or, or cell phone, but I'm checking my email with the computer in the lobby. And, I, and there's this email from the Discovery Channel. I'm like, hey, we want to do a piece on you. And I was like, what? You know, this is pretty crazy. So I say, okay, this sounds great. And then the next morning, there was an email from 60 Minutes. And they're like, hey, we want to do a piece on you. And I'm like, really? Like, this is, this is starting to be pretty interesting, right? So by the time I got back from that trip, which is like a week long weekend trip, 
I had lined up those. They were both coming to campus and wanted to do stories about knuckleballs and and Ari Dickey and and popular mechanics called. And so it ended up being this really, you know, they came down in the lab, um, set up the studios. Leslie Stahl flew in from New York, and she did the interviews in the new engineering building. And it was a lot of fun. And my daughter at the time thought it was normal that dad was on TV, right? She's like, oh, dad, you know, you're doing a shoot today. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to wear a suit, I think. So <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. But then, you know, opening day came, and but that was my 15 minutes. And, you know, I worked I worked in shock physics for 20 years. Nothing, you know. I've never had a TV station call me and want to do something. And I do one project with a student in baseball, and suddenly I get a, I get a lot of press, so. Well, my friend, that is the way it goes. I, when, when I think about all the different things that we've talked about today, it seems like, you know, you're sort of interested in how things change and what the variations in them, the, the small differences and how those impact a, a, a bigger range of things. Do you think there's just something in your brain that's just fundamentally caught on that, uh, that, that, that notion? I mean, does that really drive you? <laughs> I suppose uh, I had never really thought of that before, uh, but I do. I do enjoy these uh, noticing slight differences, and and maybe that's the way my brain would naturally filter a problem, looking for slight variations. Sand that is one of its key features is its heterogeneous nature, its variation, spatial variations, and then I guess musically uh, that 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 carries forward, and even in the knuckleball, these are these are slight variations in the pitch and in the aerodynamics that cause the ball to make very small, unpredictable kinds of changes. So maybe these things are all tied together. This is very therapeutic for me today, right? Maybe I've, I've learned something about myself today. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, John. Um, I, I, I want to thank you for, for being here on our podcast with us today. Uh, you've been listening to Illuminating Intellect, a series highlighting the personalities, pursuits, and it turns out the psychology of Marquette University faculty members. Once again, I'm your host, Dan Myers, provost of Marquette University. Illuminating Intellect was produced by Tim Sigelski. You can hear more episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for the word Marquette. For more Marquette podcasts, including Marquette in Milwaukee and We Are Marquette, visit marquette.edu podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>